Does the church serve a purpose in 2021? Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. You are listening to the Average Apologetics Podcast. I'm Corey, your average apologist. Average and little more. But as the hymnal goes, just as I am. Today, we are talking about something near and dear to my heart. That is the purpose of the church. So let me start with a question. I'm going to pose this question to you, okay? Does the church still serve a viable purpose in the modern age? From a societal standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, an eschatological standpoint, any angle that you want to approach this question from. Now, of course, this is a, a somewhat rhetorical question, right? Because God set up the church for a particular purpose, if you are a Christian, if you are a Bible believer, then you know that the purpose of the church, the 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 full context, and as far as the, the totality of the reason for the church is yet to be completely fulfilled, and we are still under that command to to fulfill the role, which involves a lot of processes, right? We're talking about the spreading of the gospel, refuting reprobate and corrupt teachings reinforcing the confidence and understanding of like-minded believers, you know, that sort of thing. But before we go very far down this rabbit hole of a topic, I want to take a moment to look at some verses of Scripture. Now, if we were in church service, I would say to my congregation, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me, if you will, to Second Corinthians, but, but... That is a bit uh, bit tricky on a podcast. You know, if you're listening to this podcast in a place where you can actually open up your Bible or at least a Bible app, open up a web browser, then please do so. Follow along. If you're not, you know, if you're driving down the road, just listen responsibly. Go back later. Look this up. Always look it up. Always cross-reference. Always double-check. doesn't matter who's telling you something. If it's me or if it's William Lane Craig. Double check. Always double check. But without any further ado, As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. That's reading Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 10 through 15. Now, if you're wondering why I brought up these particular verses in context with looking at, you know, what is the purpose of the church, or does the church still serve a purpose, then go back and look at these verses very carefully. Every cause has a standard that must be upheld. When that standard is lowered or is failed by those who are sworn to uphold it, the cause dies. For example, a military. 
is only as strong as the soldiers who do the actual fighting. You can have the, the most brilliant minds, the best strategists. You can have the best commanding officers that money can buy. But unless you have reliable infantry, unless you have boots on the ground that you can trust to get the job done, then it doesn't matter. You're going to lose that war. You're going to lose every single battle. Combat prowess is not measured by good intentions. It's measured by tangible results. To the victor goes the spoils, as they say. In this context, in what we're talking about here, the victor, or the spiritual victor, is whoever is left standing and proclaiming what they profess to be the truth. The false apostles, the deceitful workers, transforming themselves under the apostles of Christ, transforming themselves into ministers of righteousness. This is something that we see every single day. We see people bringing forth proclamation after proclamation, saying, here is the word of God, but all that they are proclaiming is their own word or the word of some other human being, some other corrupted, corruptible, sinful human being, and the word that they are presenting is not true. In an article on my site, averageapologetics.com, shameless plug, I briefly discuss the heresy of progressive Christianity. You can look it up. I believe that's the title, the heresy of progressive Christianity. Those, those two words, progressive and Christianity, do not remotely go together under the pretext of what society refers to as progressive or progressivism. True Christianity, biblical Christianity, look, it is by far the most and truly progressive world philosophy that has ever existed. It elevates people above their naturalistic station. It equalizes men and women. It balances the innate flaws throughout all of humanity within the context of understanding the sin nature as is passed down from Adam. And it brings us all. It brings us all, believers and unbelievers alike, to the foot of the cross. But the progressive nature, if you will, the true progressive reality of Christianity is not the same as what the secular world and so-called progressive Christians refer to as progressive or as progress. The kind of progress and progressivism that we see in secular society has nothing to do with moving forward. It has nothing to do with advancement. It has nothing to do with growth. In fact, it's just the opposite. It is regression. The world in which we live is rife with chaos. That chaos has a determinative force driving it. Driving it toward the corruption and destruction of everything related to Christ. That determinative force, that spirit of the age, is the same spirit we have been warned about throughout Scripture. That is the spirit of Antichrist. The antagonistic spirit which drives people away from God. And let me tell you, it dwells 
in our neighborhoods, it teaches in our schools, it coaches our sports teams, it entertains us on television, it tickles our ears through the radio waves, and increasingly, it commands us in our daily lives, whether we realize it or not. It is the epitome of control and conformity, so long as that control and conformity successfully separates people from the truth of the gospel. This is what they deem progress, the steady, creeping march away from God and toward the broad, gaping maw of destruction that awaits all who live and die in unbelief. That being said, though its reality is horrendous, its effect is alluring. It is desirable to the natural human creature. For many people, it is a snare that roots itself deeply in their emotions and their social obligations, driving a wedge between them and the truth. Even true believers are susceptible to this, can be swayed, nudged ever so slightly, little by little, away from the truth. This is a true generational killer. It's not something that wipes generations off the map, no, but it corrupts people on a, a transgenerational level. Each generation, each passing generation, grows farther and farther away from the truth. One lie compounded over ten generations equals an entire generation, if not more, whose faith lies not in God, but in some secular humanistic prattle. What I read to you from the Apostle Paul demonstrates the truth of our opposition. This is what the church is designated to fight against. Now, our battle, our, our warfare, it's not physical, but it is definitely a spiritual battle. We have a purpose to stand against the lies, to stand against the darkness. Remember, the darkness, it doesn't have any effective force on its own. Its force comes into power when the light moves away. That's the beauty of this. The church and the purpose of the church will not change. And our effect will continue to be seen so long as we act. So long as we perform our role. What the church must stand against is desirable to the nature of humanity. What we must stand against, it is appealing. It looks good. It looks on the surface as though it were righteous. In the article I referenced, that's on the site averageapologetics.com, I write about a church in Beaverton, Ohio. Now, I've never been there. I don't know anyone from there. I just know what that church puts out for the entire world to see on their website. And frankly, that's enough for me to know where their hearts, or at least where the hearts of their leadership lie. On their website, and don't worry, I won't drag you through a full reading of what's on their website, but I want to point out some things. Some, some of their, their definitions and some of their explanations, where they are explicitly defining progressive Christianity 
and defending it. This is their apologetics. What is progressive Christianity? They say the origins of progressive Christianity lie in line with keeping with their quote-unquote reformed and reforming identity, embracing, quote, a movement that began in 2006 called Progressive Christianity. The movement was part of a larger movement called the Emerging Church. At the heart of these movements was the desire to articulate a way of being Christian that was an alternative to the Christian faith portrayed in the public realm. Now, what they aren't saying there is that the portrayal if you will, of the Christian faith that was public, that they are offering an alternative to, isn't just a sect of Christianity that they are opposing, but rather historical Christianity and biblical Christianity itself. Continuing, the leaders of the progressive of progressive Christianity had grown wary of defining their Christian faith in negative terms. Quote, we aren't fundamentalists. We don't believe the Bible is inerrant or infallible word of God. We don't agree that creationism should replace the science of evolution in public schools. We don't believe that God hates gays. We don't believe that people of other faiths are going to hell unless they convert to Christianity. getting a weather alert. Sorry about that. We don't deny the right of women to choose what happens to their bodies. They go on to say that the Bible is read at every one of our progressive Christian worship services and is the foundation of our beliefs, faith, and values. Now, I want to... to challenge you just on what we've already read if we're dealing with an ideology that doesn't believe in fundamentalism that is going to the basics an ideology that doesn't believe that the bible is the inerrant or infallible word of god in other words that they don't believe that the scripture is reliable they don't believe that creationism is the truth and they believe that the religion of Darwinian evolution, because it is a religion, we'll talk about that more in some other some other time. We we have more time to go into it. Just as a as a point of reference, if you want to learn more about the realities of Darwinian evolution versus creationism, check out Answers in Genesis. Answersingenesis.com. Ken Ham and his his fantastic crew of Bible scholars, they they do a wonderful job breaking down the realities and, and the, the, the absolute falsehoods that are taught in Darwinian evolution. But when you're dealing with an ideology that holds these kinds of views and yet professes to be Christian and proclaims that it reads the Bible, my challenge to you is, is simply this. One, can you really call it Christian? And two, what Bible are you reading? The, 
they go on to say, we believe in the Trinity, God the Creator, Jesus the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus' commandment to love one another as I have loved you is foundational. Well, I thought they weren't fundamentalists. Well, if you're not fundamentalists, would you believe in anything being foundational? You say, well, you're just playing semantic with words. Well, perhaps. But perhaps they don't realize the irony there. If you're not going to break things down to their fundamental level, then how can you say you have any form of foundational value? They go on to say we are more comfortable acting on our faith than talking about it. Now, if, if we're simply talking uh, in terms of, well, they, they want to express their belief rather than explain it, that begs the question to me, can they explain it? And if they can't explain it, how do they hope to act upon it? Because if you can't explain it, do you really understand it? I said I wouldn't drag you through reading all of this. That's just the introduction. It's just the introduction. You can probably hear me turning papers in my notes. That's okay. That's okay. Because I want to get to a particular point here. There is a very important part in their definition of progressive Christianity that I want you to hear. And please, go to their website. Look at this for yourself. It's at, uh, you, you, you can Google it. You can Google it. Beaverton, uh, I think Beaverton Church, uh, excuse me, Bethel Church of Christ at Beaverton. I want you to Google this. Bethelton Church of Christ at Beaverton, Ohio. Go to their website. Go to their definitions of progressive Christianity. Look for yourself, their statements for what they represent, what they are teaching to others as the truth. Under the section titled, Our Progressive Beliefs. Section 2 says this. The title, The Christian Faith is Our Way of Being Faithful to God, but it is not the only way. Now, I understand the, sent the sentiment, right? I understand the emotional desire. You are trying to be inclusive. You are trying to bring people together. But let me ask you, if you're trying to bring people together under the pretenses of teaching them, of eternal values, eternal truths, and of the nature of reality, and you tell them, that the eternal truths and the nature of reality are dependent not upon historical and biblical Christianity, but upon your opinion and your desire for other ways being possibilities of entering the kingdom of God or entering an eternal paradise, then what are you really teaching? Are you teaching them any form of Christianity? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Their subtitle? Christianity is the truth for us, but it is not the only truth. That statement is the epitome of foolishness. My friends, truth is truth. Truth is not contingent upon anything else. I think I mentioned uh, in, in another episode uh, about Ben Shapiro, if you're familiar with him, one of his favorite catchphrases is to say that the truth doesn't care about your feelings. The truth is not contingent upon your opinions or your experiences. The truth is firm. It is fixed. It is a valid point. 
It's a constant value, like numbers. The number 2 is equal to the value of number 2, no matter how you slice it. I guess if you want to be technical about that, if you divide the number 2 by 2, then the value is then 1. You're cutting it in half. We're talking about slicing up a number into different determinate values. The point is, something that is concrete, that is absolute, is not dependent on your whims or your emotions. They explain this tenet in this way. Quote, this principle stems from the reality of the 21st century. We share our lives with people who are Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist. We experience these people as loving and caring by following their religious traditions. To deny that, excuse me, to deny that is to deny that God can only draw people with one way. That simply isn't borne out in our experience. Again, they're hinging their faith on eternal matters on temporal experiences. Temporal experiences in their eyes define constant value. Or, to, to be more precise here, there is no constant value. This comes from a postmodernist ideology that there is no such thing as an absolute or objective truth. And yet they call themselves Christian. My friends, my friends, I am all in favor of inclusivity as far as the desire to bring anyone and everyone to where they will join us in a service where they'll hear the word of God, where they, hear the, where they will hear the word preached, where they can study scripture together, interact and learn more about Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, God the Son. In fact, I believe that Jesus held that same desire, didn't he? Scripture shows in many instances people who were gravely ill, people who were lepers, people possessed. Samaritans, Jews and Gentiles alike were welcomed in his presence. But to conform your service to cater to others' opinions, that is not progress. That is regression. It is regressing. It is backing off from the standards set by the Bible. It is backing off from the standard that is ordained by the very nature of God. To deny truth is to deny God. To deny that Jesus is the only way into heaven, well, that's proof enough that what we are observing is not, in any shape, form, or fashion, Christianity. Religion? Absolutely. It is a religious structure. Secular humanism? Absolutely. But it is not Christianity. Without Christ, it is not Christian. Any other possibilities, any other means of entering the kingdom of God is to deny the necessity and the sufficiency of God's sacrifice on our behalf. You see, my friends, this, the, the church still serves a purpose, but what we see with churches like this one, that's not it. This so-called church at Beaverton is not serving God. It is pleasing people. My last podcast, I, I talked about 
the problem that I see in, in the, the reactions of people to the Ravi Zacharias scandal. People saying, oh, my faith has been shaken. Where is your faith? If your faith, if your faith is in God, then the actions of man cannot shake your faith. If your faith is in yourself or in other people or in the world or in anything that is a part of the creation, then yes, it will be shaken. It will be disturbed. What they're doing in churches like this, these so-called progressive Christian churches, is they are satisfying the fallen nature, tickling their ears with fables and lies, spreading just enough fragments of the truth to give those who, who fall for the ruse a false sense of spirituality. The purpose of the church in the year 2021 and beyond, I mean, we're, we're talking after a year of lockdowns, and let's let's not even let's not even try to get into to discussing the unconstitutionality of acts of sitting governing bodies in the U.S. forbidding churches to open, restricting congregation sizes, prohibiting singing, fining and arresting parishioners for taking part in their God-given right and spiritual obligations. Let, let's not even discuss that right now. The purpose of the church in 2021 and beyond has not changed. It hasn't changed from the days of Paul. And it will not change, no matter what we think or do. Many local church bodies are succumbing to this type of temptation, though. They are changing their service. They are changing their outward appeal to either conform so that they do not offend, or to adopt new policies to, to change the way they present themselves to be more politically correct, or even bow down and surrender their autonomy as part of the body of Christ to people who believe that secular power is greater than the governance of the Great Commission itself and the call for believers to not forsake the assembling of themselves together. I'm sure that plenty of you out there will disagree with me on some or many, even all of these points. That's fine. That's your prerogative. But I will say this. If you disagree that the church has a purpose you need, and you call yourself a Christian, you need to check your faith. See what you actually believe in. Do you actually believe God? If you disagree that the church should not adopt these so-called progressive standards, then again, you need to check your faith. Who gives you your spiritual instruction? Does your instruction and does the instruction of the church come from God or from man? Does it come from scripture or does it come from social edict? If you disagree that the churches should still be in lockdown over COVID, again, check your faith. So, oh, you're denying something. No, no, listen. Do you have confidence in God? Or are you so fearful of a virus that has less than a 0.2% mortality rate for the vast majority of people? Besides, if you had so much confidence in you know, vaccinations being the solution, well, they're available now. So why are there still churches in lockdown? But I said I wouldn't get into that. I said I wouldn't get into that right now. We'll save that for another day. The point is, if the church lowers her standard, if she backs off from her purpose, 
if, if we are going to conform to the ways of the world, then yes, the church will lose its purpose because it ceases to be the church. But the body of Christ, the true church of God, does not change. The purpose, the calling, the commission does not change. And you, my friends, all of you, all of us, myself included, we all have to decide at some point who we truly trust. Do we trust humanity? Or do we trust God? I trust God. If God gives the church a purpose, I say we need to be about our Father's business. If God gives us a standard to uphold, then I say we uphold that standard to the bitter end. If he gives, gives us a command, then we follow it to the best of our ability. We know we will falter. We know we will stumble. We know we are, we are prone to failure at almost every turn. But that shouldn't stop us from trying. And when we do fall short, we know biblically that God is more than able to lift us up and carry us onward in spite of our inability to do so on our own. Does the church still have a purpose? I say, absolutely. But you? Well, I'll give you time to digest this information. Mull it over. Contemplate it. Where do you see the church in five years, ten years? Does anything that we do change the fundamental purpose of the church? If not, what does anyone hope to truly gain then by conforming to the ways of the world? Folks, that is all for today. Until next time, keep the faith, stay strong out there, and seek the truth in all things. God bless.